Hello and welcome to the Clashing Identidades podcast. My name is Eduardo Solis and I'm here with Raciel Guevara and welcome to our fourth episode of the Clashing Identidades podcast. It's pretty exciting. We have an amazing guest. We have uh, Josue De Paz coming in and joining us for a quick conversation about what he's doing at First Tech Fund and he's also going to talk a little bit about his experience growing up as an undocumented student, you know, how he got to New York, you know, originally being or living in California, coming to first to Texas, then to New York, right? So it's a very, very interesting story. And it's pretty cool, you know, for especially for me, he had a lot of the same experiences that I had, and he's doing a lot of the work that I want to do in the future, right? So for me, this is like a sort of a full circle, you know, seeing something that I can potentially be doing in the future, uh, like Josue, or maybe even working with him, I'm not sure. But you know, G, tell me a little bit about how you feel about this episode. First of all, I don't know how I feel about that intro, Raciel Guevara. What the hell? Listen, man, I'm like, I'm gonna say it like a Mexican. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna say it like you know, Raz Guevara. What the no, hell? No, man, you you are a hundred percent right. He, uh, Josue, uh, first of all, is an incredibly charismatic guy. We yep. we we were talking to him, and his his experience was remarkable. Um, and I know we're 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 gonna have to start a, like a hashtag or something. I shout out our moms because like that's a prevailing theme like his mother's role in his education and in ultimately what he grew up to be is pivotal is pivotal and it kind of mirrors our our experiences and um shout out to mexican moms man is uh it was pretty dope to hear his story um uh, i don't know if our listeners are going to get this reference but you know that saying mama luchona yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's gonna get it. hundred percent. Hopefully, um, hopefully. But yeah, no, the the California via Austin, Texas to now in New York is uh is a pretty incredible journey. Yeah. Um and his organization is pretty incredible and I can't wait I can't wait for people to hear his story and, and, and hear about the fantastic, fantastic work um that his organization is doing. Yeah. All right, and without further ado, here's our interview with um Josue de Paz, uh, the co-founder and CEO of the First Tech Fund. Hello, and welcome to the Clashing Identidades podcast. Today, we are joined by Josue de Paz. He is the co-founder and CEO of the First Tech Fund, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting underserved students and ensuring that they have access to the necessary technology that will allow them to succeed and own their future. To, a little bit, to learn a little bit more about their amazing project, head over to firsttechfund.com. Uh, welcome, Josue. Uh, how are you doing, buddy? I'm great. Thank you for, for having me. I was excited to, to have the opportunity to speak to you. No, no, no. Thank you for joining us. You are officially our second guest. Uh, this is officially our fourth episode, and we're very excited about this one. Um, uh, we're excited to hear about all the wonderful things uh, you and your organization are doing. Uh, but before we jump into that amazing work, um, uh, I know you were born in Mexico, like myself and Eduardo, um, and were raised out in the West Coast. But tell us a little bit more about your upbringing. Of course, yeah. So I was born in a city called uh, Cuernavaca in the state of Morelos in Mexico, which is around 45 minutes um, south of Mexico City. So I've been told. Um, <laughs> not that I remember much from that time, but um, grew up there with, with uh, both my parents until they were divorced um, right around the time I was five uh, years old. And then um, 
just given my mom was searching for um, more opportunity and, and really wanted me to have, um, I, I mean, you've heard this, the story, right? The, the right. story of searching for that better life. And, right. and so uh, she made a decision to move us here to Los Angeles or to Los Angeles. Um, I had an aunt who, who lived there and who had been in the US for a while. And so um, we, we decided to do that. Um, my mom paid, um, some folks to, to kind of, uh, shepherd me across the border. Um, we, we did it at night. So, um, from what she tells me again, I don't, I don't have a recollection of this. I was too young, but, um, we crossed over in a van. The van was itself dark. Um, my mom had a visitor's visa, so she was fine but um, I was using um, my cousin's passport. And so he was um, also five, but we looked nothing alike. This, this, <laughs> he is like very, very fair skinned, has curly hair, yeah. but um, because um, they weren't checking too intense, intensely and it was night, I was asleep, right. um, immigration did not check. So um, that's how I, I came through the US and uh, uh, settled in LA. Right. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned um, your mom had a tourist visa and it's and it's incredibly different, all the different ways that people have made it across the border and have come to the United States. Some people right. like myself, we we crossed the border um, on foot. Uh, my mother, when we were when I was very, very young, kind of almost around the same age as you, I was six years old. Um, my, the same thing. Everyone needs to understand that the decision to leave your country and go to a new country and start over is an incredibly difficult one. It is not one that is taken lightly. And I, like I said in last episode, and there's no guarantees. You could come right. here and you can struggle mightily and not make anything of yourself. And unfortunately, right. it's a lot easier, particularly in New York. And we'll talk a little bit about, um, especially with the wonderful work that your organization is doing, the, the statistics of um, the Mexican population in this city, alone in this city, not across country, in this city are staggering. The dropout rates, the, the educational uh, achievement of, of our community is, is incredibly low. And, and it starts because of those opportunities um, that your organization is trying to bridge that gap. Um, but before we get into that, again, let's talk a little bit more about um, what, Talk a little bit more about your education and your in your particular case. Um, tell me a little bit more about your educational story and as it relates to your immigration story. Yeah, yeah. So I think my my education story kind of ties back all the way to, to my grandfather. And so he was uh, in a family of five. And when his dad died, he was the oldest in the family. So he had to drop out of school. I think he was in the fifth grade. And so he didn't get the chance to finish his education. He immediately had to work to support the family, right? And so um, I think that's kind of like my education origin story and like where I come from. Um, I think like he kind of like just had to figure it out, right? So first he was um, gambling, and uh, doing other street activities that probably weren't productive. <laughs> but then he picked up a guitar and uh, oh, wow. he fell in love with it. And, you know, from, from fifth grade on, that's what he did for a living. He would play at different weddings, wow. parties, different venues. And that's how he made money. He did not have any formal music education, but would listen to songs on the radio, 
or would uh, really play by listening to music. And so, um, you know, I'm inspired by the, the scrappiness that it takes yeah. for you to, to, to figure something out that quickly. And I would say that's a different kind of education, right? I think oh, yeah. it's still valuable. Um, and then my mom, she was never encouraged to take, to take her education seriously. Um, you know, her parents didn't put a big value on it, but she went and finished um, her schooling. And then I think, you know, her just being the ambitious woman that she is, um, always wanted me to do better. So she always placed huge, 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 huge focus on um, education. And I think once we came to the US, she was able to see the discrepancies and the differences in the schools in our community, right? So I lived in Los Angeles in a city called Culver City. Mm -hmm. And in Culver City, it's not what it is now. It's like a modern day Williamsburg now, right, um, right. but it's not what it used to be. Um, there, there was a big main, main street that separated kind of like the, the haves and the have nots. Right. And so the, pro the proverbial um, railroad tracks, right. The but literally though. Yeah. Like one side <laughs> of the street was like super wealthy and like nice right. houses. And the other side was like working class people and like apartment buildings. And so mm -hmm. we were on the wrong side of the so called tracks and, um, you know, my mom went and did research on the school. She saw that, you know, students were in the third, fourth, fifth grade, not being able to read yet. Right. And then she saw the school in the other community that was well-funded, lots of after-school and extracurricular programs. And she was like, how do I do this? Right. And so she went to go talk to the school. They told her she, we didn't live in the neighborhood. So she started asking around, like, who can let me borrow their address for my son to be able to go to this better school? And um, eventually someone we didn't even know, which is, I think, embodies the immigrant experience, right? People willing to lend you a hand, right. even if they don't know you personally, right. lent us her address. And that's how I got into that school. That's and I think, amazing. right, but, uh, and, and there's been people who have done that and gone to jail in some states, right? And so yeah. that was my first exposure to the fact that education is inequitable, inequitable from the beginning. Right. Uh, if you live in the wrong zip code, you might not get the same great education as someone else. Um, and so that was the first exposure. I think, um, you know, the other thing was my mom had a college degree, but it didn't count in the U.S. Right. Right. And so when we got here, she had to do whatever she had to do to survive. So she started cleaning houses for a living. She started taking care of kids. And I think while I was in school and she was doing that, she started to notice a pattern, which was these kids have technology in their houses. They have Wi-Fi. They have all these different things that are helping them do better in school. And she saw that I didn't have that. Right. right. So what she did was, and, and, and I think typical of, of who my mom is, she got another job on the weekend and was like, I'm going to work until I have enough money to buy my son a computer and pay for Wi-Fi. Right. And so that was a sacrifice that she made, you know, from from fourth, fifth grade on. I didn't see her most days and on the weekends because she was working. Right. And that was tough as a kid because baseball games, basketball games, Nobody was there for me, right? Right. But I understood the sacrifice. And and one of the things is we, we were like reflecting back on this a couple of weeks ago, just talking about the, the organization I started and, and like the journey. And one of the things she reminded me was like, we bought a desk before we bought a bed. Wow. Right? Like, 
my house, like we didn't even have a bed. We were sleeping on the floor, but I had a desk to do my homework. Wow. So wow. that just shows like my mom was not playing games. She knew that education was the way for us to really break out of the cycle of poverty that we were in. Right. And so that was where I kind of like grew to love school. And, you know, she always told me that this was my way out, right? This is my way to something better. And that's, and so and that's, it's always been a big focus in my life. I mean, and that's fascinating. That's fascinating to hear because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly, uh, first of all, shout out to your mom, right? Because a lot, <laughs> oh, a lot of moms, I mean, no, seriously, man, because it, a lot of moms come and a lot of parents come and, and they provide the opportunity, right? They come here and they, they sacrifice everything and they risk everything. And they come here and they say, okay, you're here now, right? And the onus is on the education here. All right, you go and get an education, right? Um, but like, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's rare, but it's, it's, it needs to be credited that your mother was astute enough and intelligent enough to recognize the, the differences in, in, in quality of education, right? A lot of people, when they come here uh, or they come from rural Mexico or smaller towns in Mexico, um, I guess that's credited with the fact that your mother was a college educated woman, but like, they don't know the difference, right? They know that you come here, like, and, and I'll use myself as an example. My mother always preached education. My mother, incredibly smart woman, incredibly well-read, didn't finish high school. Um, she got pregnant with me very, very young. Um, but she knew, like your mom knew, that education was the key. Education was the key for, you know, upward mobility and, and, and you know, stability in the home and everything. But her was more like, okay, now go to school. Hers was more like, all right, you tell me what you need. It wasn't more that my mother, my mother was certainly not doing research on mm. the quality of schools. <laughs> um, and, and in New York City, it's like you go to the school that you, 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 you know, and it speaks to the immigrant experience where you kind of just, you take what's given to you, you accept what's given to you and you don't look for more. Um, right. And that's not me talking crap with my mom. I love my mom. Elba, I love you. <laughs> but it's the truth. No, it's the truth. And, it, and there's a stark difference between my experience here in New York City and your experience um, because of your mom. That's remarkable. Um, the desk park, that, that's, that's, that's fantastic, man. That's fantastic. Hey, I wasn't happy at the time because I had to walk to school and it was a long walk. And I was like, yo, this school is much closer. Like, why can't I just go here? But uh, as I got older and like I started going to I actually started going to the after school stuff. Right. Like that's another thing. Right. There were so many people. And I talk about this as I talk about First Tech Fund, because we want to be a, like a community of support for students. Right. And one of the things I talk about is like there was no way my mom was going to be able to afford the extracurriculars at school. Right. It was like $300 a month. That, that was like almost what she was paying for our apartment. Right. Right. So I had guardian angels at that school. Right. Like, so I, lucky to even be there. And then once I was right. there, there was folks looking out for me. So they were charging my mom way less for the after school program so that I could be a part of it. I learned to read at the after school program. I learned how to do math. Right. Because I came to kindergarten not knowing English. Right. Um, so I actually did kindergarten in Mexico and then I did kindergarten here in the U.S. Um, so uh, math, numbers, letters. Right. I was good because I knew what they were in Spanish. I just didn't know what they were in English. So it's me having to, to relearn that. But I think like going to that school was just like so pivotal. And I think, um, you know, later in my educational journey after I finished, so that was a public school. So after I finished that, I went to another public school, which was a middle school for sixth to eighth grade. Um, and 
then it happened to be one day we were on the bus. So my mom didn't, we didn't have a car until I was around 15 or 16 because mm-hmm. I kept getting robbed at gunpoint and knife point, but different mm-hmm. story for a different day. Um, I know uh, we, uh, we always took the bus everywhere in LA. LA is super spread out and like it takes an hour and a half to get anywhere. So mm-hmm. we were taking the bus one day, we're going to downtown LA to get groceries because uh, there's great uh, Hispanic markets in, in downtown LA. And um, we passed the school and I'm like, is that Hogwarts? Like, <laughs> just just looking at the school, like, gave me chills in my body. I was like, what is this school? Is it a high school? Is it, like, some sort of performing arts? I'm like, can we get off the bus and check it out? Mm-hmm. And so we, we get off the bus, right? I'm, I'm inter- interrupting my mom's uh, Friday, like, shopping <laughs> experience. Um, but we get off the bus. We go up to the school. They happen to have an open house that day. Wow. Crazy. And wow. so we walk in. We figure out it's a high school. And so um, we walk around, we're going to the thing. And I was like, there's no way that like, I'm going to be ever be able to go to the school. I was looking at the parking lot. There was like BMWs and Mercedes (laughs) in there. And I was on the bus and we just decided to stay for the info session. And we find out it's it's $20,000 a year. And I'm like, you don't make that in a year. How are you going to pay for the school? But um, my mom applied. She honestly also, I think, had lost her job at the, around the time we, we, um, we applied to that, that high school. It's called Loyola. And uh, we actually borrowed money for the application fee, right? So again, someone out there, don't know who, right. was pivotal in my life by letting us borrow money. But applied to the school, took the test, and I was accepted on a mostly full scholarship. So another moment where so random, and yet I'm going so far out of my neighborhood. It was like a 45 minute bus ride to go to school. But had I not gone to that school, I don't think I'd be where I am today, right? Wow. Loyola High School prepared me so well for college. It really gave me the tools to be successful in college um, and, and gave me that like mentorship and support that I needed uh, during that time. Also, Loyola prides itself on creating men for others, right? So they're really big on community service. And that's where that spark was created of me wanting to help my community. Um, My school flew me down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. So I think like a lot of the experiences I had at Loyola were really monumental in my life and like really helped me to develop as a man. Um, But another thing where, you know, an educational experience that was pivotal to my trajectory, because I think without Loyola, there was no way I would have gotten a full ride scholarship to Santa Clara University. There's just no way. And it's funny because it, it kind of correlates with um, where uh, Eduardo and I kind of met. Eduardo and I met at a Catholic school here in the Bronx called Cardinal Hayes. The um, best high school in the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> similar, similarly to the way Loyola prides itself in, 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 in having that, that you know, academic mantra, Cardinal Hayes has that same kind of academic mantra. And, and the majority of the students there receive some sort of aid. It's not quite $20,000. Uh, I think the tuition currently is about eight thousand dollars. Yeah. But it's still it's a much better education than you would receive at a local public school. The the teachers there are incredibly dedicated, incredibly um, you know, just committed to educating students. And there is something to be said about giving your your kids that academic advantage by placing them um, in in you know in better academic institutions. Also, as similar like you. Um, but tell, tell me a little bit about 
what that school did for you. You said everything about, you know, kind of teaching you a little bit about community service, flying you down to New Orleans, giving you additional opportunities. But what else did it do in terms of the relationships that you built, in terms of the people that you were around? I mean, to be honest, it was my first uh, real exposure to like wealth. Right. And for me, I always lived in the same community. I saw the same people doing the same jobs. Right. And, and no one who looked like me, who was like a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, anything like that. Right. And so Loyola gave me that exposure. Right. It also furthered my perception of the inequality in education. Mm. Right. Because yeah. these students are able to pay $20,000 and get a much better education than the local school in my community, right? So I was like, okay, you can pay to play in education. That's what it is. On the more positive note, I think the school did equip me to do well in school, right? They, the classes were great, the teachers were supportive. There was points where, um, you know, like I couldn't afford food on, on like, and, and the school literally put money on my, they, we had like a, like a fake credit card at my school so you could buy food. food. Right. So they right. put money on the card and they were like, look, tell us what you need every week and like, we'll pay for the food. So, awesome. you know, I was getting fed by this, the university on top of my scholarship. And that was hard to talk about, especially in the yeah. context of the kids who were there and yeah, like, yeah, we're yeah. pulling up to school in BMWs. <laughs> so definitely felt kind of like the, the, the contrast of that. Um, and then I think the other thing the school did for me was, um, you know, emotionally, they, they helped me a lot. So I had a great counselor who was always, um, shout out Del Varga. I always had a, um, a counselor who was there for me, talked to me all the time. And I don't think that's a common experience at most public schools, right? I have a student right now. She was telling me my counselor has 300 other students. So I don't get a lot of time. Right. Right. Whereas Loyola, you do get a great, like a pretty solid amount of time with your counselor. And then Loyola also paid for therapy when I got held up at gunpoint wow. near the school. Oh, so um, Loyola really did go above and beyond to, to educate me holistically. And I think that nice. contributes to the way I wanted to build First Tech Fund. Right. I don't want to just give a kid a computer and say, good luck, because what is it that I'm really teaching the student? Right. I want to be able to be involved in their lives and help them on things that they don't have a community of people to go ask, mm -hmm. right? If you have a question, if I had a question about an internship, I can go to my mom and be like, mom, like, what do I do in this situation? Yeah. My mom hasn't worked an internship. Like, she's not going to know. So in those situations, I didn't have anyone to ask. I felt so alone. I felt so in myself and like, just isolated and i think like that's what we want to avoid with first tech fund right we want to be yeah. the community where this student can just ask anything they want right we have we have saturday office hours and uh we had a student come through and he was like what is what happened with gamestop like, i don't understand nice nice right so <laughs> yeah, we spent an cool. hour yeah we spent <laughs> an hour on saturday i was sharing my screen i was going through different news articles i mm -hmm. was explaining what the terms meant and like, that was a really beautiful moment for me and the student because the student had questions that they couldn't go ask their family, but they got the information and they got to satiate that curiosity. And I think that's what we want to do is continue to feed the curiosity that the students have. That's, that's awesome. I, I, you know, I wanted to meet you because I was pretty excited to meet you because obviously, you know, I see what you guys are doing at 
first tech fund. And I had that same experience with a lot of different programs. So part of one of the things that I want to do, one of my biggest goals in life would be to kind of bring together all the organizations that had that have helped me so that they can work together and help more people, not just individually, you know, as an organization by themselves, but as a group, you know, to like holistically, again, you know, reach um, the, the kids, like you mentioned, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't know what, what the hell an internship was. I think the first time I heard about an internship, I was maybe like a sophomore. Then that's because I joined this program. I don't know if you, I mean, you probably know, it's called um, the Opportunity Network. Mm -hmm. It's pretty similar to what you yeah, do. It's pretty much. They yeah. do great work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been with them. I actually graduated from the program uh, last year. And I think when I graduated from college, I graduated from the program. Um, and they did a lot of the things that you do, right? So um, now with that being said, you know, do you want to walk us through a little bit of uh, the pillars that you guys uphold at First Tech Fund, right? Uh, what is it that you prioritize? What is it that, that you ask from your students, if you ask anything at all, right? Or do you, you know, prioritize their needs? And how do you um, make sure that they have, like, again, a great experience throughout the whole year that they're with you. Yeah, so uh, First Strike Fund is really based on three pillars that we kind of believe in. So the first pillar is that tech access piece, right? And, and the tools piece of the conversation. What can you do without the right tools, right? And so we give them a Chromebook that they get to keep and we give them a Wi-Fi hotspot for the entire school year with unlimited data. Here's why. We know that remote learning is important. We know that um, you know signing on to your classes is important, but we didn't want to give them Wi-Fi that got throttled at a certain point because we also know that for a student, it's really important that they also focus on fun, right? And like I want these students to be able to use the Wi-Fi to go on YouTube, and to go online and game with their friends and to do whatever it is that they're curious about or, and, and wanna know more about, right? I think I always give the example that like, you know, growing up, I loved basketball. And so I would watch Allen Iverson highlight clips over and over and over and over on YouTube so I could learn the move. And then I would go try it out on people at school, right? And so <laughs> that really helped me not only develop as a basketball player, but it helped me make friends, it helped me travel because I got to travel with my basketball team and it just really enriched my entire life, right? When I was struggling in geometry, I hit up YouTube again and I was like, this is a square. Why do I care? How is this going to help me? But I need to pass this class, right? So I went on YouTube and I figured it out. So we want these students to be able to have information at their fingertips and not have to go all the way to the public library, right? I just told you, I, I got robbed at knife point on the bus going trying to go to the library, right? And so sometimes it's not safe. So I want kids to be able to be in their own space and have that opportunity to research what they want to research. I think the other thing that comes into play is if students have learning needs like ADHD or something else, if you get a moment of focus and inspiration to write that essay that you're working on something else, you have it at your fingertips, right? Can you imagine if you then have to go all the way to the public library to then write your paper? It's hard, right? And like kids have needs. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is mentorship. So I think I said this before, there were not a lot of positive role models in my community who are doing jobs that I thought would be interesting to me, right? So my mom said, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, choose. And even then, <laughs> there was nobody who looked like me 
in my community who I could ask about those jobs. Like the closest doctor to me was my pediatrician and house, right? Like the dude in the TV show. That was it. That was my, that was my perception of doctors, right? And so for us, what we want to do is one, pair them with somebody who's going to keep them accountable, right? So if you're going to, if you're going to apply to a scholarship, if you're going to apply to, to the opportunity network, if you're going to apply to SEO, whatever it is you want to do, we're going to support you, right? We yep. want this to be a launching off point for you to get into 17 other programs, mm. but we're going to hold you accountable, right? I'm going to be hitting you up when it's a week before the deadline, two weeks before the deadline and be like, where's this at, right? And so sometimes we need that. Uh, especially like for, for our younger students. And um, I think the other piece is you get to talk to someone who's been through what you've been through already, right? right? And can see you, they can show you the other side of what that looks like. And these people are working at great companies, right? We have folks who are at Robinhood. We have folks who right. are at um, Facebook, right? YouTube. And so these people are super, super successful and they're great examples and role models for our students. The other thing around that, that second pillar is like they're starting to build their network and in low income communities, you don't get a built in network, yeah, yeah. right? A hundred percent. It's hard for these students to see other folks who have come from their, their neighborhoods who look like them and like have them in their, their immediate network. So we're kind of building their network for them. They're also building network with the cohort of the students they're in, right? Because mm -hmm. the other thing I've heard is like some students don't ever leave their borough. So they're being exposed to students that most likely they would never have been exposed to. So that's yep. pillar two. Pillar three is around career panels and skills training. So tomorrow we're host hosting a resume workshop with Airbnb's rec recruiting team. We're showing these kids, you know, how to create a resume, how to create a cover letter, what to think about when you're applying to a job or an opportunity. But we've done financial literacy, right? How to evaluate a loan, how to evaluate a credit card, how to, you know, what kind of investments exist out there. Things that aren't being taught in schools, but that you need to know. Like how to yeah. set a budget, right? Like things that are well, I mean, those are life important. skills. Those are life skills right. that, that we take for granted. Like, right, that's right. something that you're, you're, I mean, if you come from a certain household, that's something that your parents are teaching you, right? I didn't have that growing or up. Or not teaching you. Or not teaching you, right? Not teaching you. That's what right. it is. Right, 100%. And it's like, uh, th that's what I find the most fascinating about about this entire project. Because yeah, um, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my experience with Eduardo. Um, I was undocumented, um, and I and I graduated college. I started a career. I worked for Major League Baseball. I, I have covered a whole bunch of different events. I worked at MTV. I worked at a whole bunch of different places. And somewhere along the lines, um, to give my son a better education, I took a second job as a teacher at Cardinal Hayes High School. My son went to Bergen Catholic in in, in North Jersey, in Bergen County, in New Jersey. Twenty twenty one thousand dollars a year tuition, right? We got financial aid, but it was still a massive expense. In order for me to cover that tuition, I had to get a second job. And that second job was working at another Catholic school, which ended up being Cardinal Hayes. Listen, you me. met me, so it paid off. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, and I say that only to do, say this. Eduardo, <laughs> while he was enrolled in Cardinal Hayes High School, he was undocumented. He was Mexican. Um, and he and I shared so many different commonalities, right? but because of that stigma attached to our own individual kind of experiences that, that, you know, that, that fear of kind of letting people know in on this little secret that we had, we siloed each other off where I could have potentially have helped him navigate his high school and college experience a lot better. We eventually gravitated back both as professionals um, and continued our relationship. 
or what right um but what your but what your organization is doing is shattering those silos and building those relationships much sooner whereas right. eduardo and i reconnected as professionals both college graduates you were doing that with these kids in high school and kind of giving them those immediate networks those you know talking about like really do it like loans and and, and yeah. setting budgets for yourself that's fantastic and i gotta give you kudos man because that's that's uh, unbelievable and i and i and i support everything that you guys are doing um tell me a little bit about what how did you because uh, i know you've worked in a couple of different places uh i think you were a community partnership manager at girls who code which is another fantastic fantastic nice. organization yeah. i know you were a little bit in influencer marketing and financial <laughs> services but tell me second. a little bit <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about what brought you back um you know to to you know to advocacy to 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 kind of give back to the community and how did you come up with the idea for the first tech fund yeah so the only thing I'll, I'll say too about the program is like the the thing we also try to pride ourselves on is that we try to build with students right so we had a student who was like i want to be a lawyer but i don't think i'm a good good enough public speaker could we ever could we ever do a session on public speaking and so we brought in someone to do a whole session based off what that student recommended. And we really, you know, tried to make sure that it was interactive and the students got something out of it, right? Public speaking is one of those skills you could use for the rest of your life, right? Um, so that's my only other plug for, for the program is like, we wanna build with the students, right? We're not just putting on panels to put on panels and just to like keep them on Zoom because everyone's tired of Zoom, but we want them to get the most out of the program and we will custom create whatever they want. Amazing. Right. So that's, that's really thing. hard to do a lot of times because you never know like how the other students are going to feel. Right. So but the way you're speaking about it, it's you know, it sounds pretty interesting. And I I was going to tell Roz before. Well, I call him G, but people call him. <laughs> I, I was going to tell G, you know, I think I might have to go work with this guy, you know, because <laughs> when I was looking for a job and, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off. So I'll let you get back. To no, you're good. You're good. Quick. But when I was looking for a job, you know, recently graduated from college, mm -hmm. um, a lot of what I was finding myself was like torn between going like, you know, the social advocacy way, because that's something that's really important to me. And that's something that I've had, you know, for however many years I've been here. Um, but I've also wanted to be like, you know, I'm working in media right now, right? So I was always, always torn between, but the, the way that I worked around that is, I still remain connected with a lot of nonprofits that help me and I try to help them with whatever I can, right? So I'm currently working at this nonprofit called uh, Sankofa Tech. And when I say working, you know, it's like, for free right and then yeah. i'll pay me but uh, <laughs> i'm volunteering your yeah 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 so i'm there i'm their chief financial officer um, at yeah. sankofa tech <laughs> so um you know that that's actually that uh nonprofit was started by one of my classmates at cardinal hayes when we were i think juniors or sophomores mm -hmm. um so he's been working there for like 2015 um and i just joined him last year um you know and it's it's pretty cool to like start building something from the bottom to the top right and it's like you said we try to catered to the students but it is difficult right you have to like know okay you know is this going to be worth it is this going to be something that is really impactful for them so the fact that you are doing it you know at such a high level in such a short time is pretty pretty amazing so kudos yeah man i appreciate it and i think that is like the perfect transition to to your question Raz. like yeah after college you know daca had just been enacted honestly in college i was like how the hell am i even gonna work like why am i even wasting my time like I used to just go work in construction and start making money because there was no path, right? I was like, I can't get a corporate job. Like, what's the point? 
And so, uh, and I couldn't even get internships, right? So when I was applying to jobs, there was kids in my school who had been doing internships since high school. Yeah. And, nope. <laughs> and I was like already behind, right? Like I had one or two internships under my belt, but it was nothing super impressive. So I wasn't getting called back from anywhere, right? And the way I got my foot in the door, and, and I guess the, the higher level thing to focus on is I was never going to do nonprofit. One, because I didn't know what it was. And two, because I really could not afford to. Yeah. Nonprofit does not pay well. It is not like an industry where you go and make a ton of money. So I needed to take care of myself first, right? And start building my little uh, safety net and start saving and, and doing some of these things before I could start thinking about helping someone else, right? And I think, I think that's been kind of like the, the, if you had to sum it up in one word of my career, right? Is like, I needed to learn the things that were out there first and make money for myself and take care of myself before I could take care of other people. And it's not to say that I didn't volunteer or be on junior boards when I was working, but I just knew that if I could make money first, then I would have more options down the line. So I got my foot in the door because my mom cleaned house for the guy and and took care of his kids for the guy that ran this advertising agency and so one summer he let me intern and then they never could get rid of me after that right i like to say is like if you let me in the door you're not gonna let me leave um or you're not gonna see me leave so i got my foot in the door shout out to your mom again coming in for real (laughs) for real she's no shame she will ask anybody for anything which i love but um but yeah, I started at the agency as an intern after graduation. That was a big ego hit too, because I was seeing my friends get full-time offers at like Google and Facebook and like all these sexy companies. And I was an intern, yeah. right? I was like at the bar, like handing out drinks after at happy hour at the agency. Hey man, listen, right? I was at a bar too. I loved it. I loved working at the bar. I just didn't like the schedule, man. Working till like freaking two in the morning, waking up to go to class. It's not, it's not the life, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah so i mean it was a it was a, definitely an ego burster right because i thought it was um you know i thought it was i was uh something but uh <laughs> but yeah i started as a strategy intern and then i realized like i hated the work like, i hated it it was just not for me it was like sitting behind a computer and doing research which is like cool but i like talking to people as you can see like i'm like all over the place and energetic <laughs> and it wasn't until they allowed me to go to a presentation and present to a client the california lottery in sacramento shout out to them um that i realized like i'm in the wrong field like i need to be talking to people as my job right. and so um actually my internship boss from the summer before told me about this company that was hiring in Austin, Texas. If you asked me to put Austin, Texas on a map, (laughs) there was no way I would have been able to do it at that point. It could have been at the top of the state, could have been at the bottom of the state. I had no clue. But I was like, let me apply. Let me see what's good. And so uh, I applied uh, through a referral through my uh, former internship boss, who's now on my board of directors at First Tech Fund. Talk about full circle. Um, Your network. Got the job. Hey, tell them. (laughs) <laughs> Tell them. Um, but uh but yeah I, I got the job and I was like wait now I actually have to move to Texas like I all I had known being from California is that they loved guns and they hated immigrants so I was hella scared I was like oh no like what did I just do but I think my goal as a, as a as a professional has always been to get to New York and part of that is because I see this 
as a city like that embodies opportunity, right? right? If you want it, it's here. If you work hard, if you grind, you can make it here, right? As corny as it is. And two, because my third grade teacher made me a Yankee fan in LA and I've been a Yankee fan ever since. I knew I liked you from jump. Ever since. Smart man right there. I was like, I go be by my team. (laughs) because <laughs> i was always the away fan man i was going to angel stadium i was going to the coliseum in oakland oh, people man. are always booing me throwing beer at me but uh you're brave for I was doing like, that. I gotta be- man I, I i'm not scared but uh even the, the one that was scary was dodger stadium when they played the yankees Ooh, and i showed up there with the yankees jersey scared listen. Dodger scared. stadium and not to <laughs> not to deviate this conversation too much but dodger stadium <laughs> And Fenway Park are the two scariest ballparks for an away fan. Yes. And I never, and I have no shame in saying this, I've never worn a Yankee shirt or a Yankee hat in Fenway Park uh, or Dodger Stadium. Mm. It's just not safe. It's just not smart. It's not practical. I did. I did. <laughs> so you I did are never a much it. tougher man. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a bit. I want to know. Yeah, I mean... I went to a uh, Fenway for Jeter's last game ever. So not oh. the last game in New York, but his last mm-hmm. game ever. Yeah. And uh, I think the Boston fans had compassion for me, right? Because it was his last game. They were being nice. But uh, I think, yeah, I got a, I got away with one there. There you go. Nice, nice. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, I wanted to be in New York. And so, um, you know, I made the move to Austin, Texas. I kind of like finesse what team I was on and what kind of clients I was working on. It was like only New York stuff. I made it very known very quickly that I wanted to be in New York to the company and the company for context works with investment banks to help them with due diligence. So say, you know, Goldman Sachs wants to buy Snapchat. They would go to GLG and say, Hey, can I speak to three experts in the social media space to get a better understanding of like what the headwinds are and what the challenges are and what the opportunity is in the space. And so I would connect them with third-party consultants, making sure that from a compliance perspective, they could speak to them because they didn't, to make sure that they didn't have any sensitive proprietary information that they could give the banker. And then they would uh, uh, talk for a bit. So that's what I was doing. I worked with a lot of big investment banks and eventually uh, a spot opened up in New York. So literally day 365 in Texas, I was on a plane in New York um, and, and I made it out here. And then, um, you know, I worked at GLG for a little bit. I worked in the influencer space. And, and really when I worked in the influencer space was when I realized that I was doing the wrong thing with my life, <laughs> right? Not to exaggerate, but I was like, what am I doing? Right. It just like was such a jarring experience to go to a job that you hated. And like, this is maybe the only job I've ever hated in my life mm-hmm. and feel like you're just wasting your life, right? I wasn't making an impact on anybody. I was helping brands make more money right? Like that doesn't like, what's the point of that? And so that's when I had a moment of reflection, like, what am I doing with my life? And that is also when somebody told me about Girls Who Code. And those intersections of kind of like reflection was how I made it to Girls Who Code. And I would say Girls Who Code is the best job I've ever had, um, besides for Stuck Fund. And <laughs> the job that <laughs> the, the, the job that taught me the most about myself and about life right um seeing how far you could get how many people you could impact if you had the passion and the tenacity to do it was like eye-opening to me like i did not know that nonprofits could operate on that scale i did not know that nonprofits could operate with that impact and so for me it was like the spark that was lit 
right? And now I'll say I'm on fire because I'm doing my own thing and I'm serving my community. But that lit the spark for me um, because I was serving on junior boards and stuff. And like, that was great. I was speaking to students still. I was interacting with them. I worked with the Children's Scholarship Fund in here in New York on their junior board, but it wasn't enough. Like I wasn't doing it day to day. And so, um, you know, there were times that Girls with Code was hard, right? I covered the South. I am undocumented. So I was going to Tennessee. I was going to Kentucky, right? Where people were like, wow, your English is good. And I was like, uh, I've been here for a while. I speak yeah, properly. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, you know, there was times that were really hard. People were screaming MAGA at me in the airport, oh, right? Man. Like, you know, like scary too, right? Like you're walking around Baton Rouge, Louisiana at night. I was scared. No, for sure, man. And it's but, um, certain parts of the country are just not are just not a you know good place to go if you're brown. Certainly, uh, you know, in the last four years in this administration, just it just makes you feel unsafe. And it's kind of sad how, you know, we are in one of the safest countries in the world, theoretically. Right. But it's it's just difficult. It's difficult. But uh, I got introduced to Girls to Code because uh, at my current job at Yahoo, um, we uh, they were par part of um, this this Makers Women's Symposium. Mm. Uh, it was this beautiful uh, event down in, in San Francisco at the Uber headquarters. Um, and I was tasked with kind of kind of chopping up and doing some sizzle reels for the, of all the speakers. And one of the speakers was a representative of Girls Who Code. And they, they were one of the, the main sponsors of the event itself. And it was just, I was like, whoa, this is a thing. And I remember like sending it out to a whole bunch of different people. I was like, yo, this is really interesting. I have a, my, my, my cousin is 16 years old. And I was like, hey, listen, this is, fantastic organization you should definitely look into so i was like sending it out it was like this thing that i'm like oh this is incredible people, you. right it was like people should know about this uh, <laughs> but anyway that was my introduction to girls who code so when i saw it in, in in your uh in your career profile i was like oh that stood out to me but i'm interesting uh so tell me a little bit about how that experience kind of eventually became first tech fund and how that helped blossom your your organization yeah, so a big part of my job at Girls Who Code was to travel for conferences, right? I was traveling all over the country and speaking about um, Girls Who Code. And, and when I wasn't getting questions on stage of like, are you a girl who codes? Um, <laughs> I was interacting with uh, I was interacting with teachers and students. And uh, yeah, you really had to, to figure out how to respond to some interesting questions on stage. But um but, uh, you know, one of the things I was seeing and, and hearing from, you know, t uh, parents, teachers, administrators was that, like students didn't have Wi-Fi at home or didn't have mm. computers or didn't have tools. Right. And so that kind of like planted the seed in my mind, like, OK, like there's really great curriculum, like girls who code top to bottom curriculum is incredible, hands down. But if there are students that like can't access it, then like that's a larger problem. Um, and then I think. That kind of like made me curious. So I started researching like, okay, like what is that statistic like in New York? And like, what is that statistic like in Brooklyn? Like how many kids have computers? Like, what does that look like? So I started doing more research, I got curious. Um, and then COVID hit and I got laid off. And that was like a really difficult period for me because that was, I was at my dream job. Like I was enjoying what I was doing. I was getting to talk to people. I was getting to travel the mission spoke to me, right? Like my mom, if she was born today, she would be a STEM girl, right? I, I tell her all the time, she loves science, she loves math, she loves like all of that, but no one nurtured that for her. And so she couldn't become that. 
So my purpose at Girls Who Code was to make sure that no one else like my mom got missed, right? Like I wanted to make sure that, you know, she didn't catch that train, but let me make sure that others do. And so for me, it was really hard to get laid off because I was really passionate about the work and I really believed in what they were doing. But at the same time, it was such a blessing because I had the moment, I had the space, I had the time to think about what I wanted to do next. And for me, it's always been like, I've always wanted to come up with like this really cool million dollar idea that like changes a hundred thousand people's lives. And it's like so great. And I've always kind of been waiting for that. I have a, a notes, a note on my phone where I write down all my different business ideas. It never came. Right. But what I kept thinking about was like, can I just make change like locally? And like, if 20 students, if I changed their life completely is like, is that terrible? Like, no. Right. So I was like, why don't I start something now that I have the time, the energy, the space, the money. Right. I had already worked for five years, so I had money saved up. I had just bought a condo. Right. So I had everything I needed, the network too. Right. Like I had made relationships with people. So I had everything I needed to finally like launch my own thing. And I saw how big the problem was just here in, in New York. You think of New York, you think of art, media finance, right? You think of all these things, you don't think about kids not having Wi-Fi, right? So we started First Tech Fund. I started sharing the idea with friends in a Google Doc, and I was like, destroy this. Like, give me the harshest feedback. What about this does not make sense? What about it does? I asked people from different industries, like nonprofit, but from the fundraising perspective, from the student development perspective, from the curriculum perspective, trying to get as many people's eyes on what I was trying to do. And then I started building the program. At the same time, the, the Black Lives Matter protests were going on. So I did not want to start fundraising because it felt wrong to take away from what was happening, right? So we put that on pause. I just shipped, shopped the idea. I started talking to administrators. I started talking to folks about what the execution of it would look like. And then um, not that the Black Lives Matter movement ever ended, but we waited until July and then started fundraising for the program. And initially it was supposed to be 25 students, uh, but, but then I, I, um, I went on the news. I went on Univision, which was my mom's lifelong dream for me. Uh, she was more, never <laughs> more. <laughs> she was never more fulfilled than in that moment. But um, listen, it doesn't count. It doesn't count unless you're on linear television and particularly Spanish language television. It doesn't count. <laughs> like my for Not years, really. my mother was like, "What is it that you do?" I, like, <laughs> I said, "Oh man!" And then they, I, I was on a, on a program, a, a morning show. On, on Univision, and she was like, oh, that's what you do. Yeah. Oh, okay, it doesn't right. count unless you're on TV. But anyway, continue. <laughs> I just texted my mom, like, how do you say nonprofit in Spanish? Because <laughs> um, yeah, I was struggling on the interview. Uh, thank goodness for, for having the, the words right here, otherwise it would have been a, a mess. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I um, we started fundraising. It was only supposed to be 25 students. And then I went on Univision. We started getting like applications like you would not imagine. Right. So then I was like, OK, we need to up our spots because we're not going to be able to do this. And so we upped it to 50 stu students and eventually, you know, uh, signed a partnership deal with T-Mobile uh, to give us discounted uh, hotspots and then a partnership with uh, this company called Revivin that gives that um, refurbishes computers from tech companies and sells them to different folks. So um, we gave all our we bought 50 refurbished uh, Chromebooks and then. Um, 
we, you know, started selecting the students and um, at the same time I was unemployed, like I said, right? So I was starting to, to kind of hurt, right? I had a, a mortgage I had to pay, I had bills I had to pay. So I started looking for a full-time job and um, I landed at the startup called Free Agency. So I worked there for, for about six months. They helped people get into tech careers. But, um, you know, eventually I decided, and this was a month ago, that um, it wasn't fair to both organizations for me to, you know, be splitting my time. Cause I was working like seven days a week, 10 to 10 every day or nine to nine to 10 every day. Right. And so it was a grind, dude. Like some weeks I was working like 90, hundred hours and it was just like, not fun. It was like horrible. Um, so I just decided like, it was time for me to, to like really double down and dedicate, you know, my time to first tech fund. And so a month ago I quit my full-time job I don't have a salary right now. I'm not getting paid through first tech fund, but this is the work that I was meant to do. And, you know, I'm at a place in my life where I can take a big risk, you know, and I, I'm very privileged too, in the sense that my wife works in tech. So, um, you know, she's able to help with the bills more so right now that I'm taking this risk. And so obviously that comes from a place of privilege, but, um, you know, I just felt like I wanted to do the program justice. I wanted to do my students justice. Um, I wanted to make sure that they had got everything they needed and everything they wanted this school year. And, and so um, that's where I'm at. Nice. Well, with those details, I think that goes pretty, um, to the, it goes pretty well into the next point that we wanted to cover, which is what kind of uh, support do you have from foundations for from you know corporate sponsorships corporate grants right and and how do you I guess for you since you're a, such a young organization right how do you prioritize those um, different grants and how can people help right how can we get involved with you know individual giving or like even small gifts right how do you um, recruit people to join you and what can we do to help yeah so small gifts have been our bread and butter Right, like we have raised around $47,000, 100% of which has been through individual donations. Um, so that's been um, where we've seen most of the money come in. We haven't partnered with any brands yet. Foundations have not said yes to us, unfortunately. We've put out a lot of applications there, but uh, so far only knows. Um, and so we've just been trying to be creative, right? We have a yoga, yoga online Zoom fundraiser coming up and uh, we sold merch, right? So we've just been scrappy in terms of how we're fundraising, um, where we're looking for sources of money, where you've been applying to the different uh, awards you can get, right? So I applied to the David Prize, which is $200,000, which is unrestricted funding for five people. They said no. Um, and then more recently, um, we heard back from the um, New York Knicks and Squarespace Partnership. Um, and we were selected as a top 10 finalists for their grant, which is $30,000. Um, but uh, they're only choosing the top four. So what we'll need oh, people to do geez. is... Hey, that's amazing. <laughs> this is an accomplishment. Progress. That's Progress. dope, man. Yes. And you with your love of basketball. The Knicks yeah. are a fantastic... I'm a huge Knicks fan. So tell us, tell us, I know there's a social component. Tell us what it is that regular people can do to help you guys out. There is. So um, this week, uh, Thursday, April 8th to Monday, April 12th, 
a tweet will be sent out through the Squarespace main Twitter account that will have First Tech Fund. And what we need people to do is go like it and retweet it to drive engagement to that tweet. Nice, let's go. Yes. I got oh, this. Man. I don't use Twitter, but let's go. I'm gonna, I'm Everyone gonna you do, know. start making one. <laughs> A hundred percent, man. That's uh, that's a big deal, bro. That's a big deal. And congratulations. And yeah. we'll, we'll do our best to kind of push it out to our through our social channels. Um, and and I'm excited, man. I'm excited. First of all, I'm excited to get myself. A, a, I'm going to buy me a hoodie. Yes. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yes. I'm going to buy me. us a hoodie. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, a, it's a package deal. Come on, listen, come on. You're, you're, you're a grown ass man. You're buying yourself your own first tech fund. Listen, man. Or listen, it's my birthday buy, gift. Or you buy two, and then I buy two, and I give one away. Let's see, this is how we can do it. We can, we can. No, no, no. But it's my birthday. Oh, so it's like yes, buy four, buy, buy seven, ten, six. just buy ten, <laughs> buy ten. Uh, but no, man, for real, absolutely. That's um, that's fantastic news. Uh, that is fantastic news, and we'll do our best to kind of, kind of jump in there. Um. Uh, and again, uh, tell us a little bit about where people can find you. Give us again your website. Uh, where can they send uh, donations to, um, so that we can definitely kind of get the spread the word out as well on that front. Yeah. So, a couple things. I think if folks, you know, brands want to come partner with us, we're open to partnering with brands, um, especially for for in kind donations. We're looking mm -hmm. for a hundred laptops for our next cohort of students here. So. Anyone has uh, extra hundred laptops out there, they just want to uh, give to a good cause. Uh, feel free to email me at Josue at firsttechfund.com. And if you want to give an ind individual donation, which is, like I said, the, the bread and butter of our work, um, the link is at firsttechfund.com. Nice. Awesome. Cool. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, there's one other thing I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, and that's, uh, it's interesting how the COVID the pandemic um, kind of really highlighted this kind of digital divide, right? Yeah. It's been a problem for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. Just not having not having the access to technology and certain resources has been impacting and hurting people for a long time. Certainly since um, when I was in school, I remember my first computer was a compact Presario and, and I just didn't really grasp the importance of that in my household. Um, and it was, and it was, I didn't even grasp the 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 importance of having that knowledge till I got to college, and I was like, oh, and people were like, oh, like struggling with, and I'm like, oh no, I know how to do this, and I'm like, oh wow, it it really is an issue, but certainly with the pandemic, and and, and I'll give you a little bit about my experience, when we switched over to complete remote learning, um, my son already had a Chromebook, my son already had access to the internet, um, and it was a relatively smooth transition for us because he had access to these things. It mm -hmm. wasn't, um, but then we were getting, like, we were getting emails and say, oh, if you need a Chromebook, come pick it up. And like, it was a holdup uh, in the instruction because 60% of the class didn't have a Chromebook and they needed to wait to go to the school and pick one up. And then I would talk to my mother in New York and a lot of people were like, oh, our kids are new starting online learning because they haven't had a, their own Chromebooks and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's a huge, huge problem that you guys are trying to address. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a statistic out there somewhere. I read it in a, a news article that like 2,600 students did not show up for school this semester, right? And a majority of them are black, brown, and, and low income, right? So this is obviously affecting um, our community much harder, where our community is also getting hit harder by COVID, right? So it's almost like a, a double pandemic, especially with everything going on too, with with the race and and the attacks that have been going on, right? Like, 
our communities are the ones that are being impacted by everything that's going on. So um, that's been sad to see. My hope is that the, the government will take action and, and realize that um, you know our students are literally the future of this country. And um, you know it requires a proper investment of resources to make sure that our students are doing well, right? Every single student in a New York public school should have a computer of their own, right? Every single person in New York City should have access to Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi at this point is a utility, right? You need to have it. How do you sign up for a vaccine? How do you get social services? How do you do any of these things if you don't have Wi-Fi? So I think that's my biggest takeaway is that there needs to be larger scale change and policy change to really fix this issue, right? I had to say no to 700 kids who applied to my program, right? And so I'm, I don't know that I'll ever be able to serve every single kid in New York or across the country, right? Because this isn't just happening in New York, right? It's happening in Philly, it's happening in Miami. We heard from students in those cities who wanted to be part of the program. Wow. Wow. Man, that's, yeah, that's so, something I was going to mention. You know, it's like we've, we've talked about at least five or four, you know, different nonprofits pretty much doing the same work, but for different, you know, different tracks. Right. But it's still it's incredible to see how like how there's still so much more work that needs to be done. Right. And it's like you mentioned, there, there needs to be some policy change. Um, but I think something that helps that cause as well is the future generations working like to ease those like to, I guess, to combat those uh those struggles, right? So like you with First Tech Fund, me with the whatever, however many nonprofits have helped me in the past, right? I'm still trying to do the same thing. So um, with that, like that kind of brings me to our final question for you. Um, can you speak a little bit about how you're preparing your future generations of your students to kind of take the reins and lead more, um, you know, to their networks and to the people in their communities, right? What What is the um, Young Leaders Council at First Tech Fund? Yeah, so I think, you know, none of this work would have been able to get done without the really committed volunteers that we have, right? I'm one person. I have a co-founder who's also my wife. That's another person, right? But there's so much work to be done that it would not be possible for us to do it just alone. So we have a group of 19 young leaders, young professionals who serve on our junior board, which we call the Young Leaders Council. And they really help us execute on a number of things, right? So they help us fundraise through their networks. They help with the mentorship piece. So if we're recruiting panelists to come speak on a panel, they leverage their network. If they, um, if a mentor, for example, I have students who want to work in healthcare, I do not work in healthcare. So I then go find a healthcare person to introduced to my mentee so that they can have a more interesting conversation, right? So the young leaders help with that kind of stuff. And then they also help with programming and, and marketing and, and just everything that we're working on. So I think, you know, this is like a community-led effort. And I think that's really the important piece. I think the other side of that is what we're trying to instill this in the students is that, you know, for, for, for us to be investing in you, someone had to invest in us. Right. And, and like this, this money, these computers, they didn't just appear out of thin air. Someone is making an investment in you. And so what we hope that you will do is one day in the future, make an investment in someone else. Right. And so one of the questions on our application was, will you in the next 10 years commit to donating a laptop for one other student? Right. Because I really believe in the principle of each one teach one. Right, somebody helps you, teaches you something, it's your responsibility to go and teach somebody else. So 
through the Young Leaders Council, through our students, I really hope that you know we are building like the next generation of leaders who are gonna go out and change policy, who are gonna go out and change education, who are gonna go out and change whatever it is they're passionate about. And that's fascinating. I mean, listen, and we actually met through a member of your Young Leaders Council, my, uh, my buddy, Luis Oprisa, um, who I worked with at, over at Major League Baseball for a number of years. Um, he kind of connected us, uh, and, and that is kind of what brought you to this episode. So um, uh, shout out to you, man. Shout out to you, and shout out to the fantastic work that you're doing. Um, I love I love that concept, that last part, part about kind of reinforcing that we all kind of need each other, and community building is such an important concept, uh, so, such an important aspect of the, the work that you're doing. Uh, I thought it was beautiful. Um, one uh, shout out to your mom again, man. Listen, <laughs> shout out to your mom. Uh, and it's become like a recurring theme in this podcast. Um, the whole notion of like pulling yourself up by the, by your own bootstraps is, is a fallacy, right? Yep. Nobody comes to this country and pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. There's a community, there is a family member, there is a, a organ, like there's a whole bunch of people behind you to support you because life in this country is incredibly difficult. Life in the country is, is incredibly difficult, and every statistical uh, analysis that has ever made about a community, you are more likely to fail. You are more likely to succumb to a life of crime, statistically speaking, than you are to be a success in this country. And that's a shame. Um, but through the support of families, through the support of organizations, advocacy, advocacy groups, groups as you, such as the First Tech Fund, um, we are able to kind of lift each other up. And that will not continue to happen unless we continue to build communities and kind of look behind us um, and kind of pull the next people up uh, who are coming behind us. So I applaud you. I applaud your organization. Um, just just tremendous work. Um, I look forward to uh, contributing in any way that I can. Certainly there's going to be monetary donation. I'm certainly copying myself some dope <laughs> a hoodie or a shirt or a hat or something. Uh, and I'm going to wear it in my next episode. Hopefully it gets here in time. Yes, I love that. <laughs> so again, man, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, we want to give you the space to uh, any closing thoughts or any other message message you have to our listeners. Um, kind of the floor is yours, brother. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think uh, for me as a high school student, I always felt super alone, right? Because nobody knew I was undocumented. Nobody in my sphere uh, could go through or understand what I was going through. And so I think my message really is, is to like the students who are currently undocumented right now and, and are going through it. And, and it's that there's lots of different paths to success, right? And, and there's lots of definitions of success, right? And, and to not get stuck in what today brings, um, but that there's like hope on the horizon, right? And I really, really believe in that. I really believe that, um, you know, there is going to be positive change for people who are experiencing this, right? Um, so don't give up, you know, keep uh, keep your head up and, and have faith that things are going to work out. It's, it's hard to do. There's lots of, lots of factors against us, lots of things going against us, lots of people going against us. But if we stick together as a community, uh, I think like anything is possible. Beautiful, brother. Beautiful. We always go, we, Eduardo and I always go back to the analogy of, of the kid who's in remote learning right now, who's undocumented, who's embarrassed, who's afraid to talk about his experience. Don't be. 
Don't be, do not be embarrassed. Rely on your network, rely on your community, open up to people and you'll get the help. There's tons of organizations doing the work, tons of organizations, tons of people like Josue who are in the trenches, who are putting in the hard work and the equity hours to kind of help people out. So yes, a hundred percent better days are coming. Josue, thank you very much for everything. Thank you very much. Thank for you for sharing. having me. Thank you very much for opening up brother, because it is a difficult, a difficult thing to kind of share uh, some of your experiences. And I definitely want to hear more about you getting stuck up and robbed going to the library, but that, that will, that will have part two, offline. Part two, part two. That, well, that will have offline or maybe we'll even make it a part two. But Listen, again, the same thing happened to me, but not on that scale. Not on that scale. <laughs> but again, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for, for being honest and raw and sharing your experience. And we applaud all your efforts. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, that's it, man. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Jose De Paz, uh, the co-founder and CEO of the First Tech Fund. Man, he's got he's got an incredible story, man. He was uh, he was inspirational, and and if you allow me, uh, I see a lot of you in him, and a lot of him in you. Not just um, because of the similarities in in experiences, because I, I you know you know me, I always like to say every immigrant experience is different, every story is unique. But I do see a lot of similarities, Eduardo, in you and him, because um, a lot of the things that he's talking about and a lot of the things that he's working on is a lot of the things that you and I have discussed offline, um, the things that you want to accomplish. Um, yeah, and, and, and I'm excited to see I'm excited to see you get to where he is. Um, and, and look, without advocates, without people doing the work of giving back to the community, the community will suffer. Um, yeah, that's the truth, man. And um, I'm excited. That's incredible. Yes, yeah, like I said in the, you know, during the episode, I think he's doing what I wanted, what I want to do, you know, like in the future. I don't know if I, I thought about, you know, maybe starting my own nonprofit, but that is a lot of work. And I don't think I'm quite there yet in terms of like the network. I feel like I do have a lot of people who might be potentially able to help me, you know, with the fundraising or the admin stuff or like pretty much running the organization. But I don't think my network is there in terms of like, you know, the money aspect, right? And that's that's something that's hard, right? He, he mentioned he got denied a bunch of times. When I was working with George, um, I was pretty much doing the same thing, right? Uh, at About You, I was, you know, submitting grant applications to Nike, Adidas, government foundations, right. and everybody was saying no, right? And it's even more tough when you're a, you know, one or two year old nonprofit, right? So, you know, right now at Sankofa Tech, I think I'm getting a lot of experience um, in terms of, you know, writing grant applications or reaching out to corporations, you know, Google, Microsoft, right? There's a lot of good things coming our way. Um, so I, I'm hoping to, you know, use that knowledge for the future, right? I don't know if I'm gonna start my own thing or just, you know, keep on working with nonprofits the way that I have, but pretty excited to, you know, maybe potentially even work with Jose, you know? I'm excited to see what you accomplish, brother. I'm excited to accomplish. I'm excited to see and witness firsthand um, where you end up and what you decide to do. Vayner yeah, um, um, sports. Vayner sports. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I mean, uh, that that is a recurring theme is 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 the notion of not not just accepting what is presented to you. He talked about being at girls who code and that kind mm -hmm. of just kind of building that sense of confidence in himself and kind of just wanting to do more. Um, and, and, and that's, that's a common, you know, kind of, um, immigrant storyline of just accepting yeah. what is given to you, accepting the realities of your life, but no, if you persevere and if you want more for yourself and if you keep, keep, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, good things will definitely come. Like the great, uh, Mexican philosopher ever said, 
Chase Serrano, you can't win a game seven without losing three games first. You know, you got to keep at it. You got to keep at right. it and keep grinding and keep grinding. Um, but again, thank you. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful episode. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited for the next episode. I'm excited to continue this conversation. Um, uh, and with that being said, thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you stuck through to the end. Um, our listenership is growing by the week, by the episode. And, and we are heartened to, to kind of continue to have this conversation. So uh, with that being said, thank you very much for listening. My name is Raz Guevara. Uh, he is Eduardo Solis. And this has been the Clashing Identity Honest Podcast. Thank you.